On the, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and the disciples had been invited to the wedding also. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus said, My hour has not yet come. Jesus' mother turned to the servants and said, Do what he tells you to do. Now nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews in ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. Then he said, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not know where it had come from, but the servants who drew it out knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you, you have saved the best until now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus displayed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, I love this account in John's gospel for two reasons. First, for what it says about Mary and her strength as a woman. Mary was a young gal when she had Jesus, but she's a little older now, and she's seen Jesus grow up, and she knows his power. And in this moment where the wedding needed more wine, and Jesus balks at the opportunity to fulfill his mom's request. Mary's look toward Jesus was probably that look that some of you mothers in this room have given your child. I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of it. The second reason I love this account is for what it says about the servants. Given the opportunity to hear the voice of God, to do what he told them to do, and then to know where the wine came from. So as we turn toward our series in Mark this morning, just a quick note, you'll want to turn there if you have your Bible. I don't have a lot of the text up on the screen. Uh, but just a quick note about what we are actually going to cover this morning. We're just going to look at Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. You say, well, what are you going to do with the other 45 verses in Mark chapter 6? I'm going to sum them up for you really quick right here. There's three stories in the remaining part of Mark chapter 6. Two of them involve a platter. On one of those platters is five loaves and two fish, and Jesus feeds 5,000 people. On the other platter is the head of John the Baptist, when an embarrassed woman feeds her pride. And then Jesus walks on water. That's the rest of the chapter. We're not going to go there. We're going to deal with the first 11 <laughs> verses. In Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1, we find Jesus returning to the place where he grew up, his hometown, Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is eight miles from where the wedding at Cana took place. That's from here to the hogback. And when Jesus returns to Nazareth, it must have been sometime during the midweek or so because the text tells us that a few days went by before the Sabbath came, which would have been sort of Friday afternoon into Saturday evening. And, and when people are getting off work, 
and there would have been more people around sort of the public places in the town, Jesus begins to teach. And I think we can gather from the questions that ask in this text, are asked in this text, that um, something felt different to the people there. They ask the question, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that has been given to him that he even does miracles? So whether or not Jesus did any sort of um, demonstrations or miracles in the first few days that he was home, or, or whether maybe just the wind had blown far enough from Cana and Capernaum and these surrounding cities that the people had heard of Jesus' miracle working power, something felt different. But they recognized him right off the bat. Isn't this the carpenter? I mean, those were the hands of a blue collar teenager from their town, the hands that had helped fix some of their stables and maybe even built a few of their dinner tables. And as they think back to Jesus' teenage years, they begin to become a little bit agitated that this kid from their town would now speak to them with authority. Several of them were probably much more thoroughly trained than he was. And so they begin to mock him. But as they start to mock him, as you'll see in your text, they're, they're faced with a dilemma. I mean, what do we do when we mock someone? We tend to think about some character flaw that they have or some way that they got it wrong when they were younger. And the people... I would imagine we're having a difficult time thinking of a time when Jesus screwed it up as a teenager. So they begin to do what most people do when they lack ammo and they're trying to mock somebody. They go after his mom. Isn't this Mary's son? You and I are told of the account of Mary and we sort of believe it from the text, the Immaculate Conception and the Virgin Birth, but this text and others in Scripture would lead us to believe that um, whether people knew about that or not, and if they did, they, they didn't believe it. They, they saw Jesus as the son of Joseph and Mary. And to point out here that, and not even mention Joseph, this is sort of an underhanded dig at Mary and at Jesus. And aren't you the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And Jesus, aren't your sisters right here with us? I mean, they're all pretty normal human beings. What makes you any different? And Jesus, as he so often does in the scriptures, instead of just sort of demonstrating his power in the moment or calling down thunder and lightning from heaven, he just sort of throws out this general truth that has the power to pierce to the hearts of the people there and potentially pierce ours as well. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own home. And you and I go, how could they be so blind and deaf and rude to have the Son of God standing in front of them, speaking with power and not seeing who he is? And yet, you and I do it to him all the same. We are the hometown we so easily can become inoculated by our culture and drift into this place of not anticipating and being excited about the potential of the Spirit of God working in our midst. 
We're the master of the banquet who doesn't know where the wine has come from. Or maybe we're so sort of gleefully drunk with the things that we have in our world that we just fail to see the Spirit working all together. Maybe that's why the scriptures say, don't get drunk on wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. And when we do this to Jesus, we actually sort of um, indirectly do this to the people we love. I wonder when the last time um, someone you love went away from you for a while. Maybe a son or daughter went off to college for a few years. Maybe a, a son who's married or a daughter who's married moved away with their kids and then moved back. Or maybe, maybe just a spouse left and went on a retreat for a weekend and they came home. Here's what may have happened. While they were away, they had their spiritual cage rattled by God. God did something in them that, that changed who they were. And when they came home, in the first few days of being home, they may have done, done something remarkable. Something that if you were paying attention, would have shocked you. And in that moment, you mocked them. You didn't do it intentionally. It's just your default. It's what we do with the people we love the most and know the best because, heck, we've seen them screw it up for years and years and years. And so when the Spirit chooses in His wisdom and His timing to do a deep work in their heart and to change them on the inside, we at best question it and at worst fail to see it all together. I know a young man who um, went away for college and this very thing happened. God did something radical in him and he came back and he, he looked different. And he, he had a zeal for Jesus that um, I hadn't seen before and he wanted to share with me some scriptures that he was learning and he was excited and this was at the beginning of Christmas break. And then what happened? Christmas, Christmas break happened. If you've ever been a college student, you know what this feels like. He hung out with his old friends from high school and some of his extended family members, and this zeal for Jesus just wasn't met with the same kind of encouragement that he had maybe hoped for. And I saw the young man again after three weeks or so at the end of Christmas break, and he looked like he'd just gotten out of the ring. And he, he said, I just don't know what happened. And he shared with me that, that the enemy had had sort of a heyday in his life over those three weeks. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own home. And sometimes without knowing it, the, the gospel that we've preached to those people that we love the most is something like that could never come from someone who's screwed it up like you have. God chooses the strong things of the world, the ones who have it all together, the pure, the wise, and the, the polished people. No, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not 
to nullify the things that are. Because if it was the other way around, we'd beat our chests and we'd show everyone the number on our jerseys. But if it's this way, our only recourse is worship. So the next time the Spirit shows his work, show your worship. When you see him working or moving or speaking in someone you love, encourage it. Pour gasoline on that fire. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, um, don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good, avoiding every kind of evil. One of my favorite um, Jerry Seinfeld stand-up routines is uh, when Jerry impersonates the flight attendant that stands between first class and economy class and holds that curtain (laughs) and gives you that look. If only you had worked a little harder. (laughs) And at first glance, this seems to be what Jesus is doing to his hometown in Nazareth. The text says that um, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And I think the, the verse in and of itself is, is kind of funny. I mean, he, he couldn't do any miracles there except the ones he did. But this begs the question, could he do miracles there? And I bet you if I pose that question to you, half the people in this room might say, well, absolutely, he's the sovereign God of the universe. He can do whatever he wants. It's not limited by human beings. The other half of this room might say, well, no, the text says that he couldn't do any miracles there, so that must be what it means. He was limited in some capacity, obviously. But I wonder, I wonder if he... It's a little bit of both. Maybe he, he is limited, but not by what we seem to see in this verse. Maybe he's not limited just because of their lack of faith. Maybe God's limited in this moment with his hometown because he's so committed to his character and to the unraveling of his kingdom that when he's presented with this moment of a lack of faith, of the people he knows the best, right? He came to that which was his own and his own didn't receive him. That he loves them so much that he withholds the full measure of his blessing and his healing in that moment because he knows he has something better for them. And sometimes what looks to us like the judgment of God is actually his mercy. And so often we want mercy in the the giving from God, but we get mercy in the withholding. And in Nazareth, Jesus withholds the full measure of his healings and his blessings because he knows that it's the Nazarenes that um, want the things from him but aren't able to see the person in front of them. They've proved it with their questions at the beginning of the text. Where does this man get these things And so by withholding the full measure of his healing, Jesus is giving his hometown an opportunity to wrestle with the person they've just encountered. That's mercy. 
And I wonder this morning, what is it that God is withholding from your life right now? The thing that's just eating away at you. And he would have you wrestle with himself. And so Jesus moves on from there, and the text says, goes from village to village, and meanwhile, calling the 12 disciples to himself, and he gives them authority um, to go and do what he's doing. And it says, these were his instructions to them, um, take nothing for the journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. But if no one will welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. While this seems like a list of directives to his disciples, I don't think that Jesus is giving a list of rules by which their mission's going to fail if they don't do it this way. I don't think that he's um, mandating the way all future missionaries should exist. I don't think he's calling all of us, his future followers, to a life of poverty. I think he's just making a statement about his kingdom. By using this language, he's uh, potentially stirring something up in his disciples' minds where they might go, I, I've heard that somewhere before, that language, no, no, uh, just a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. What does that sound like? And maybe one of them would have said, yeah, but it sounds like, it sounds like um, Egypt. When the Israelites were in Egypt and God was giving his people directions on how to observe the first Passover meal, these were the directions. Uh, staff, sandals, wear a cloak tucked into your belt, eat it in haste. Because the Israelites were about to go on a journey to a new land with new hope and new life, and along the way it was going to be hard, and Jesus was going to give them manna from heaven. And so by using this language in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm, I'm inviting you and giving you authority and power to invite the people around you on a new kind of exodus, a new journey into a new land with new life and new bread to eat, and it's me. In John 6, 33, uh, Jesus says, the bread of God the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And in that story, the Jews that were with Jesus look at him and say, uh, Jesus, always give us this bread. And then you know the story, Jesus says, well, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And in that moment, the Jews who are with Jesus do the same thing that the people in Nazareth did. They begin to mock him. Isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? How can he say that he came down from heaven? See, so often all we can see is humanity, and Jesus is showing us heaven. Mark's message is the same as John's. The Spirit is working, the Spirit is moving, and the Spirit is speaking, and there's some of you who just 
don't see. And just a quick note to those of you who may be in here this morning and you're struggling to see or hear Jesus. Get out. I'm just playing. I'm totally kidding. (laughs) Do not... Isn't that what you hear from the church pretty often? We see and you don't. We know and you don't. We get it and you don't. So if you're not there, just get out. And Jesus would would warn us, be careful if you think you stand lest you fall. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. And right now, you only see dimly through a glass. There's nobody sitting in this room that sees clearly. And so if you're here and you're struggling to see God and hear from him, lean in. Lean in. Ask, seek, knock, cry, get mad. But to be balanced, if you're here this morning and, well, if you're here this morning, this probably isn't true of you. Um, If you're a person that is just pushing against the goads and you'll have nothing to do with it and the church has been reaching out to you and they've extended their hand for a while and um, maybe you've taken what they give you because the things are fun but you don't want to listen to anything else, don't be surprised if the church moves on. At least for a season. Because there's something in this passage from Jesus that seems to say to his disciples, if no one's going to listen to you or welcome you, shake the dust from your feet and move on. In other words, if it starts to rust, shake the dust. (laughs) If, If you're a person that Jesus is working in and speaking to and moving through, don't let the blindness and deafness of others slow you down. Jesus' statement to his disciples may have been part euphemism, but he may have actually wanted them to do it, literally. He he may have been reminding them that the feet of those who bring the good news are actually quite beautiful. And don't miss the irony that um, Jesus chooses one of the ugliest parts about us to remind us how beautiful we are. Jesus' words to the servants at the wedding are his words to us. Just fill the jars with water. And you're the jar. And he's the water. And when we do, I think people around us will begin to ask the questions, um, the same questions that Nazareth asked. Where do these people get these things? And you and I then have the opportunity, it's one of my favorite verses, to just tell them where the wine came from. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. One of these um, precious jars of clay uh, passed away this week, a friend of my family's. Her name was Robin. Robin lived 50-plus years with um, Down syndrome. 
And over the course of her life, Robin became good friends with Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny Erickson Tata runs camps in the summer. She's a disabled woman herself that God has used mightily. And her summer camps reach out to the disabled community. And over the course of a couple years, um, Robin attended those camps as a camper. And the story goes that um, Robin got a phone call one day from one of the representatives from Johnny and Friends. And the representative recalls that this is how the call went. Robin, this is um, so-and-so from Johnny and Friends, and um, we've got a, an exciting opportunity for you this year. We'd love for you, Robin, to be one of our counselors this year. Instead of just a camper, we want you to help lead other campers for this summer. Robin, what do you think about that? And the woman recalls on the other end of the line hearing nothing. And then after a few seconds, the phone put down. And then the woman recalls in the background hearing Robin's voice. Jesus, do you want me to work at Johnny and Friends this summer? (laughs) And then a pause. Sounds good, Jesus. And then she picked up the phone and said, Jesus told me I'm in. Robin was a servant who knew where the wine came from. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love that song. We... We came here with nothing, but all you have given us, Jesus, bring new wine out of us. Lord, we need you. Fill us with your water. In Christ's name, amen.